Do you like the work we're doing here at It's All Journalism? For as little as a dollar a month, you can help us continue the conversation about good journalism. Show your support by donating to our Patreon campaign. Go to itsalljournalism.com and follow the link at the top of the page to donate. You know, for us, it was really cool to put together some of this new technology that's being used, as Daniela mentioned, to reach immigrants, to reach experts, to reach folks to talk about these issues, but also a good way to put together some of the experts like Julia Preston, who moved recently from The New York Times to The Marshall Project, who's been covering this for decades and who has a really good understanding and is providing some really foundational analysis right now. Welcome to It's All Journalism. I'm Michael O'Connell here with another podcast about digital media and the people who make it. This week, we're going to be talking about immigration with Daniela Gerson and Elizabeth Aguilera. Daniela is an assistant professor at California State University Northridge with a focus in community, ethnic and participatory media. She's also a senior fellow at the Democracy Fund. And Elizabeth is a multimedia reporter for Cal Matters covering health and social services, including immigration. So we met kind of, not really, uh, via my email box. Somehow I ended up on an email list for a Migratory Notes, which is a pop-up immigration newsletter that the two of you produce. So what inspired you to do this newsletter? The week in which the travel ban, the first travel ban happened, we just noticed a frenzy of immigration news coverage. And we were trying to keep up Honestly, I am a former, this is Danielle, I'm a former immigration reporter, and I wanted to be reporting as well. So it was partly just an effort to try and keep up with what was happening, and then also wanting to report some on it. I think the other thing we saw was that there were some extraordinary reporting happening, and that there was also a lot of new people who had never covered the beat before. And so there was an opportunity to try and synthesize some of the coverage. It was also an extension of a conversation that Danielle and I have been having for years, where we often share stories, immigration stories, stories that deal with ethnic communities, you know, exchange them via email or in conversation. Hey, did you see that story? And sort of break it down and talk about what we liked, what we thought could have been done better, what was done great. And so this was an avalanche of stories for our conversation. And we just thought that there were, you know, there was a way to put it together for other folks, too. Okay, so why why a newsletter? Why not some other way of doing it? Why did you want to do that? One is just like when I think back to like 11 years ago when I first started, or longer ago, when I first started covering immigration, the newsletters were really helpful. For me personally, like I'm not going to always look at a website. I'm not always going to go there, but I really appreciated the, the newsletters that I received then were mostly aggregation where people would just show every headline. But it was very helpful to me. And so that was one reason. I think putting it together in a newsletter format, it was the letter part of newsletter that sort of stood out to us. Because initially we were reaching out to people who are writing about these issues, who are following immigration, who are tracking the, the story, the larger story out of Washington, D.C. and everywhere else. And so it was more like putting together a letter you know, to folks who are invested in this issue to say, hey, here's what we see is going on. Here's what we're reading. Here's what people are doing that's working or not working or crowdsourcing or just a really great read or listen. So the letter part to me sort of stood out to us in terms of reaching out to folks. So what is it that you see that people are doing well at this point in, in immigration coverage? Because, you know, I guess you sort of alluded to the fact that partly because of the ban, 
that there was more interest in it, more being written about it. So what's your takeaway for the, of the type of stuff that's being written? I think that some of the best coverage that we have seen has taken all of the emerging like digital tools and ways to connect with audiences as well as subjects and then do that along with great reporting that doesn't only take like what the Trump administration has decided today or the action of today, but also put it into context. I mean, the really great stuff has been rare, but there have been some fantastic examples. I think that Nicholas Kulish at the New York Times after the travel ban was instituted, his sort of all night reporting in New York that really set the tone for the reporting on that topic was extraordinary. I think we also, we highlighted Fernanda Santos, also of the New York Times work, where she did a Facebook, she did a Facebook Live where she followed the children of a woman who had recently been deported from Phoenix across the border, and then did the Facebook Live across the border, incorporating questions from readers across the country. Now, I guess what you're doing is you're saving or you're sharing what you see are the most interesting and important and you know, stories that we can all learn from. Are, are you seeing, I mean, is the level of coverage, is it improving? Is it, you know, is there bad coverage mixed in here with, with what you're seeing? I think one of the things is a lot of the stories are moving very quickly. So the same problems you have with like the 24-hour news cycle you see happening. I think one thing to remember with immigration is that there is a long history of policy decisions that for instance, the Trump administration is not working in a vacuum where there were no deportations before Trump took office. And so I think sometimes we don't see as much context as there could be, which is part of the challenge of having new people come on. Sometimes things have been reported wrong in terms of like people saying that there was a, what was it again? There was a Muslim um, family in Chicago who had said his mother had been deported, his mother had been deported via the travel ban, and then it turned out that she had not been. Some of these things that happened from moving quickly. In terms of like improving the quality, I don't know that I've noticed it's, you know, we've been doing this for seven weeks. What I have noticed are trends in coverage and both trends in terms of topics that are sort of moving and then people forget them, but there's still issues that need, that hopefully people will come back to. And then I think I've also seen things like, um, you know, you asked also about the extraordinary reporting. I think a lot of people are trying to figure out how would you do like a crowdsourced raid tracker? And that's something we've seen people trying to figure out in different ways. But there are real challenges there of connecting with immigrant communities who are fearful, who may not use the same technology. And also just like, so that's what there's... um, I guess you see sort of similar trends in terms of what people are trying out. I think some of the variations in coverage is also what inspired us to share this newsletter because you have a lot of new folks covering this issue who maybe haven't covered it before. And as Daniela said, there's a long history of immigration policy. I've been covering immigration for a really long time, and there it sort of ebbs and flows when there's you know, big policy in Congress being debated when there was a comprehensive immigration package. A lot of people are interested in covering that. A lot of people are paying attention. Then that goes away. It gets kind of quiet. No one's really writing so much about immigration. So no one's, there are only a few people that have been keeping up with all of those policy changes. So we thought it would be 
you know, for us, it was really cool to put together some of this new technology that's being used, as Daniela mentioned, to reach immigrants, to reach experts, to reach folks to talk about these issues, but also a good way to put together some of the experts like Julia Preston, who moved recently from the New York Times to the Marshall Project, who's been covering this for decades and who has a really good understanding and is providing some really foundational analysis right now for the public, for the audience, but also for other journalists who are coming into this topic. So there's an increase in stories, you know, I think you kind of alluded to this, that there's a lot of attention all of a sudden around this. But, you know, as you said, the immigration story has been around for, for forever. <laughs> it's been around <laughs> for years and years and years. And so suddenly now there's this attention on it. And, you know, the, the press does what the press always does. It, it, you know, throws all its resources at something that it's been kind of following, but maybe, maybe not following as well as it should be. What are the types of stories you would like to see covered or maybe even better covered? Cindy Karkum at the LA Times did a good story that's coming out this week, which really looks at it looks at enforcement policies and the question of what's happening to employers. Um, and so it looks, I think there are a lot of stories in there that can go sort of, I like the stories that have a strong narrative, but they also go deep into the policy behind them. And so I thought she did a good job of weaving that together about a really important policy question. You know, I said this before, but I think it's the stories that don't look at what's happening in a vacuum right now. And don't assume that everything worked about our immigration system beforehand because it did not. I think the stories that take the long view. Yeah, I would have to echo that because I think it's really important to put things into context for the audience. And so stories that are highlighting, of course, this increase in deportations or apprehensions, arrests, but also that mention the fact that this was going on long before that this was going on under President Obama, that people even called him the deporter in chief, to remind folks that this is, as you said, a forever thing here in the United States, but it's being approached in a different way now under the Trump administration. That is what has everyone sort of watching this issue. The other things in terms of stories, I think that I've been waiting for the business story. So it's nice to see that Cindy Carcamo is working on that because I think that was the piece that's been missing up until this point. There's a lot of attention on the actual people who are here illegally, but the employment side, as we know, looking through history, is the magnet, as they say, the economists say. And if they don't address that issue, I don't know that the other efforts will will be successful. And so it's interesting to now watch that question start to rise because of a journalist doing the story. Another issue that I often see happening is there's this cliched view of an immigrant, specifically an undocumented immigrant. There's the assumption that undocumented immigrants are in our inner cities and really an urban phenomenon. And when you look at the data, most undocumented immigrants right now are living, while they're in metropolitan areas, they're outside of the urban core. And so there are so many stories that choose one person at a taco stand and talk to him about how he's feeling about immigration policy. And that taco stand happens to be in a place that's sort of a historic immigrant landing site. But what's overlooked is that most of the undocumented immigrants there are in suburban or exurbed areas and or the highest concentrations are. And so like, those are the communities that are being impacted that are often overlooked right now. And I think there should be more reporting on those sites as well. 
Yeah, I, I live in Northern Virginia, and I used to be an editor for a community newspaper, and there was a large immigrant population, and we saw them in the, you know in our school stories, in in our in our business stories, you know, in our zoning stories. This population was integrated with the rest of the population, in, in many ways, had different needs. There were different pressures that it had that that weren't always apparent when when you were covering these stories. But yeah, it's it's not just perception that, that general, generally people have about what an immigrant is. And I guess one of the things we're doing stories like that you're sharing is, is one would hope that this sort of puts, you know, a face, a different face for people on, on who the immigrants are in, in our country. I think the other part to that is, and you bring it up with the schools, is that this is so much a family story that when you're talking about status, most people live in mixed, mixed status families. And so that if and when deportations increase to the numbers the Trump administration is saying it's going to do, it's going to impact many more people than those who are actually deported. I think that's people are getting to that, but the idea of this is a family story is an important one as well. Yeah, and that's starting to come out with some of the stories that are being told. And I think it hopefully will continue in the stories because if, like Daniela said, they reach the numbers they're hoping to, it'll cascade out to many more folks, not just those who are here illegally. So there's been a couple of stories about, you know, a grandmother in San Diego who has been apprehended and detained. I don't know if she's been deported yet, but she, you know, has a son-in-law who's in the military and sort of the story went into how this is basically a military family. She provides daycare for the grandchild and how they are impacted Another story here in Los Angeles where a father was deported, you know, arrested and deported in front of his child who's 13, who, who used her cell phone to video the arrest, who's a U.S. citizen and he has four U.S. citizen daughters. He's been here for 25 years. So I think that those stories are showing sort of that family angle. And then there was a story out of, I believe it was Pennsylvania, where, you know, this town, this county that had voted predominantly for Donald. It was a Trump County and a very well-known and popular restaurant. I don't, I think he was a restaurant manager was arrested and now faces deportation. And everyone in the town was a little surprised and saddened by the fact that their friend who they know and care about and who helps everybody in town is now facing this change in his life and his family's impacted. And they didn't, I don't know that they even knew that he was in that position. So these are stories where you're seeing that sort of ripple out to families, to communities, and then in this town to all the folks sort of kind of facing the decision they made as well. Yeah. And I think that that's why it's helpful to have stories that put things in context. You know, it's easy to sort of look at immigration as a knee jerk sort of thing where, oh, the, you know, they're, they're illegal. They're illegals. We, we have to get where they're here, not here for the, the right reasons. They need to be out of our country. We need to build a wall. But then when you start actually covering the, the, the story and try, start understanding the scope of what immigration is in the U.S., then you see that it, it seeps into all different types of stories and all different levels of our, of our society. And so then it becomes less of just boxing off or walling off, I guess, boxing one one section of the of the community, but but in actuality, looking at every aspect of our community and 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 what the impact of of immigration and and immigration reform is. And I think that I mean also touches on you asked what else journalists could be doing. The question is also of you know this solution oriented approach 
to the coverage. There are some policies that have worked better than others in the past. Like it is a large intractable problem in terms of how do you figure, create a just immigration system that protects our borders, but also enables people to work here legally, all of those elements. There are some programs that work better. And I think now is also a time where we could highlight some that have functioned well. Tell me about your your own experience in covering immigration. What what got you interested in this topic? And what are some of the stories and projects that you've worked on? So this is Daniela. I started, you know, I had studied Portuguese and Spanish and lived in Brazil. And when I started as a reporter, I was intent on going to Latin America and report from Latin America. And I was lucky enough to start really reporting at the New York Sun, which was a daily in New York City. And they gave me the opportunity to create a new immigration beat for the paper. And I did a series on criminal deportees to the Dominican Republic for them. I covered, I mentioned it in this week's newsletter, actually, when the Irish, when the comprehensive immigration reform was moving forward in 2006, the Irish were very involved. And I went with the Irish to Washington and where they were walking the halls of Congress. You saw the sort of surprised looks of Congress people who welcomed them into their offices and then learned that they were undocumented. And then also when Hillary Clinton came out for the first time in support of immigration reform. I went from there, I did some work in public radio and immigration reporting. And then I worked, I had a couple of fellowships in Germany where I looked at temporary worker programs, how they'd worked in Germany with their Gastarbeiter program. And then I also was in Spain where they did a really interesting, there's this town in Southern Spain, which was hiring Moroccan mothers because they didn't want them to overstay their visas. And so these Moroccan mothers were hired to pick strawberries with the assumption that they would go back to their kids at the end of the season. And actually the Moroccan mothers were like really happy to be at without their kids for the few months. They were having dance parties. So I did that. And then I came to USC. They started a program in immigration reporting. Roberto Soro, who is a longtime immigration journalist, started a program with Michael Parks on specialized journalism. And I had a with a focus on immigration and demographics. That's how we met, by the way, is that program. Daniela did the program one year before I did, and we became friends uh, shortly after that. After that, I was interested in not only reporting on immigrant communities, but this question of how do you report with immigrant communities? And so that I don't just go in with a microphone, but I also work with members of the communities to tell their own stories. And so I worked on a, a partial re research project with USC and an immigrant community of Los Angeles we created a multilingual news website, a Hamburg source. And that's more or less what brought me to where I am today. A lot of other stops. Well, yeah, let me just ask you to sort of elaborate on that. You, you're drawing the distinction between being a reporter covering a community, but then actually covering, helping to the, the community, I guess, to report or reporting with them. You know, what's that experience like? One of the main changes I noticed was, so it worked in Alhambra, which is, in L.A. suburb, predominantly immigrant, at about 51% immigrant, but either immigrant or first-generation American. And the stories about policy, the stories that you do for a community that's not 
that you do for the outside, like that I would do for the LA Times about Alhambra was very different from what I found residents of Alhambra most interested in. You know, they're interested in like crime stories. They were interested in the dog park. The actually immigration policy wasn't the number one issue. And it wasn't like the number one thing defining them as members of this community, which I think is an important thing to remember as well. The other thing I did there, which was really interesting, was we partnered with, we had a community contributor model. And one man who was a community contributor who was a courts interpreter, he wrote that he felt that the police department could do better connecting with the Chinese community, which was about half, well, about half the population is Asian and mostly from mainland China. And he suggested they use social media, but that they use Chinese language social media. The police chief read this article, and we ended up partnering with the police chief and creating a Weibo account, which is a Chinese version of Twitter. And more than 40,000 people now follow the Alhambra police Weibo account. And the police were answering questions like, can I leave my child home alone? What do I do in a hit and run? Different questions that people had, but hadn't found a way to connect with their local police department about before. So... I mean, that doesn't fall under traditional journalism exactly because we did partner with the police chief, but we were providing information to community members. Yeah. And and actually, it's interesting that when you you draw the distinction that you do, that you're you're not you're not the outsider so much that, you know, once you enter into the community and you begin to see their their concerns, you know, so often when when we cover these stories, it's so much about, you know, you know, our perspective and not necessarily thinking about the individuals that we're covering and what their their concerns are that you know maybe the the person we're talking to is is particularly concerned about you know immigration policy because maybe they're actually dealing with it, an issue in their family but for the rest of the time they're they're dealing with the the same community concerns they might that anyone might have about you know living in in America as we do now yeah i think that's really important I mean, you look at on large scale like pew hispanic studies and others continually find people assume that, for instance, Latino communities are most concerned about immigration, but find education is always at the top. Yeah, the, the, the stereotype or the assumption that the immigrant communities only care about or, or their top concern is policy or what's going to happen is, is really not, it's not realistic for the communities themselves. I mean, they care about the things that most communities care about, which is education, public safety, the economy, jobs. Yeah. You know, they care about finances, you know, things that most people, most everyone, most mainstream Americans care about. And then immigration may rank, you know, much lower on their list of things that they're concerned about on a daily basis. So that's something that's interesting when we look at what people care about. And I think that's the difference between reporting traditionally and then being in the community and talking. If that is your audience, then you're thinking about it in a different way. For me, with immigration coverage, it's been I've covered it on and off throughout my career, but I've also covered, you know, ethnic communities quite a bit in my career and also did cross-border reporting. So I worked early on in my career at the Orange County Register and, you know, there I covered, went to Mexico with a team of reporters to cover the presidential election of Vicente Fox. And that was not quite an immigration story, but it was an interesting story in that they campaigned here in California to get people to come back home to vote. So there were many people, many residents from Orange County who went to, you know, just across the border in Tijuana to cast a vote for this president that was, you know, toppling the old regime and taking over, hopefully then, and then he did win. So we were there for that. 
So I've had an, an experience of a career where I've covered a lot of issues that aren't quite immigration, that bump up against immigration, that deal with immigrants, and then also the immigration issue itself. So I've covered you know, urban affairs, and I've covered community health. I've covered minority business, which most minority businesses are started by immigrants, and they have a different issue, different concerns and audience for their businesses, um, but who are following the same track of this idea of an American dream, who are applying for SBA loans, who are trying to reach you know, their target demographic for their business, mostly here in California. When I worked at the Denver Post, I covered immigration off and on, depending on, as we talked about before, sort of the ebb and flow of this issue. For a while in Colorado, it was a huge deal. The state legislature was trying to, to take on some aggressive bills on immigration and cracking down. There was, you know, the huge marches of 2006, I believe, 2006. that surprised people there in Colorado and around the country. And so... I've covered that issue. I've gone to the border with state Colorado state legislators who went there to visit the Minutemen to kind of check on border patrol and border safety issues who were really intent on that, you know, covering out on the ground in Colorado. I did a series of stories with another reporter around Latino life in Colorado, which one of those stories was about the Roaring Fork Valley, which is inclusive of Aspen, you know, very popular ski resort, very expensive place, but that it was growing, it was growing exponentially at that time. And it was fueled by the construction labor of Latinos. And so the story was about these families who came to the towns of Basalts and Aspen and Rifle and who were living there, but who were building, you know, these huge mansions and hotels and luxury living for the folks who live there and what that meant for them and how the valley was changing because of this labor boom. And then also looking at life in Denver itself, the differences between new immigrants from Mexico and the old Hispanic population, they self-identify as Hispanic people who've been in the region for decades, maybe generations or centuries, people who uh, were living in northern New Mexico and Colorado long before this became the United States, who have very different perspective from the new immigrants who were coming to Colorado in the last 20 years, but who people all look at in the same way. And so talking about that divide. So I've been looking at immigration on different levels. When I worked at the Union Tribune in San Diego, I covered immigration. And so I covered the efforts of John McCain on comprehensive immigration reform, but also the building of the wall, the completion of the, the wall that's existing now, not, of course, Mr. Trump's new wall that he's talking about, but kind of going along that. And also some of the issues of border patrol and immigration and customs enforcement with, you know, tunnels and enforcement on drugs. Also some of the issues they've had with violence and uh, along the border for the agents, but also some of the actions they've taken that have resulted in the death of undocumented immigrants trying to cross into the United States. So those were the stories I was working on in San Diego. And then I've covered community health for the last few years, which isn't necessarily immigration, but impacts immigrants, especially here in Los Angeles. So how do they get health care? You know, what are some of the issues they deal with? Where do they live? a lot of environmental justice issues there. So it's a kind of a mix mash of immigration and communities of color coverage that have brought me to where I am now with this newsletter, but also through all that time reading stories and keeping up with the news to be up on those policies. Because you also, in my case, when you're in a newsroom, you sort of become the resident expert on these issues or something happens and you sort of provide context 
or you are asked to cover those issues. Um, I work at Cal Matters now, and so I'm covering immigration again, which has been great because there's so much going on right now, as we were discussing, but also allows me to do the newsletter and kind of feed off of that information for my own coverage. So a lot of people, you know, in the discussion that's come out of uh, about immigration since since the election, there's sort of this combination of both sort of the traditional immigration stories or ideas of what immigrant immigrant populace is and the travel band and um, the sort of anti-Muslim sent- sentiment. I'm not sure how to ask this question or even what the question is I want to ask. It's, are these the same stories? Are, this, are these the same, you know, issues that are impacting each other? Or are they different? Are they different issues that are being sort of lumped together? And, it, and if you don't want to answer that question, feel free not to answer it. I, you mean the travel ban? Well, and yeah, I mean, it's, it's like you know, the, um, you know, you, you mentioned, you know, at one point, you know, being on Capitol Hill and dealing with, um, you know, Irish undocumented citizens. And then also talking about, you know, we've been talking about Latino uh, population, which I think a lot of people sort of associate with the bigger immigration story. But now we have this sort of sense, and I say now, this is something that's developed over, you know, a couple of years, the, you know, the idea of the Muslim uh, population. I guess a lot of that has to do with, or the immigrant population has, has a lot to do with what's going on in Syria and in Europe. So are the stories that are being written about, you know, the, the different populations, are are they the same? Are they different? I'll take a stab at that. Yeah. So. I think the stories are different because the story is different. So when you talk about, you know, Latino immigrants or even the Irish that Daniela was mentioning, or oftentimes, you know, immigrants from, say, Haiti who've come through the Mexican border, we're talking about mostly undocumented folks who've come in either on visas and have stayed over or who have come, you know, just coming through the border, asking for asylum. There's several different ways that happens. When you're talking about the Muslim issue, the ban, the travel ban, some of these concerns about those countries, I think that's an entirely different group of folks that we're talking about because they tend to come as refugees. They've applied for special visas. They usually have permission to come in, and that is being rolled back or or attempted to, the Trump administration is attempting to pause that or stop it. And so that's a very different group of immigrants in that we would usually call them refugees or they would be visa holders or they are, in some cases, if they come here to work, they're H-1B holders. So they're in a different sort of immigrant group. And also I think that they face different challenges in their efforts to get here. That's a good way of looking at it in terms of singling out a group that is legal immigrants and putting up barriers to their entry. The other thing I'd remind you is like, you know, I covered immigration in New York after September 11th and the NSEERS program that was a registration program for residents of Muslim and Arab countries in North Korea. That was for various years after September 11th. And so again, it's this idea that while this, is a new face of it. Not everything that's happening is new. But I think that the definition between targeting an illegal immigrant group and putting up barriers to entry based on religion or ethnicity is one way of thinking about 
one, I mean, that's an important distinction. Yeah. And we haven't seen that in, in decades. And I don't know that we've seen it before when it comes to religion, but definitely from certain countries, right? The Chinese Exclusion Act of what was that 1920s, I believe. So that we have seen some of this before, but it's been, I mean, it's been almost a century since the United States has done that in terms of a specific ethnic group. Is that right? I'm not sure how long, but it's definitely the U.S. has a history of doing this. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Don't let's scratch the century part, please. Um, But but yeah, I think it's been it's definitely been at least decades since there's been any exclusions based on a particular sending country. There are limits on how many folks can come from certain countries, but that's been in place for a long time. Like how many people can apply for to come and live here, how many people can apply for a visa to come here for an extended period of time. And those things go quickly. They've been in place for a while. But this type of ban on certain countries with religious implications, I think that's new based on what we're seeing now. You're including these different types of stories in migratory notes or are these are definitely immigration stories. Okay. Well, I wasn't going to ask this, but before we wrap up, what is it, you know, because I like to try to be optimistic with these things. Not that we've been pessimistic at all, but, you know, what do you what do you hope for in covering these stories going forward? What do you hope happens besides somebody shooting a video that, that has a powerful impact on policy and the way people perceive immigration? Or is that enough? In covering the story, I would just hope that we as journalists are able to get it right and accurate. I think that it's important to put it into context, you know, there's been a lot of hand-wringing over the Trump administration executive orders. And while they're very, very different from what has gone on before, you know, there have been, there have been deportations going on. There have been, you know, people coming and going. There have been difficulties for folks who want to come here. And I think we have to put that into context for the audience. And so for me, it's making sure that we get the history right and putting the story into perspective, but also bringing forth those human stories, like we're talking about the little girl shooting a video of her father being arrested, or other people who are, you know, even the the stories that are being told about families impacted by even crimes or car accidents that have been, you know, the fault of someone who's here illegally, you know, you're telling both sides of that story and trying to understand it in a very humane way for me is moving the story forward uh, for everyone to sort of get an idea of what is really happening and what the solutions might be coming. I would add that I do think that what we are seeing are communal extreme, while there has been all types of restrictive policies in the past, these are extreme policies that we have not seen in recent history. And so that by pulling each week as we pull this together, it gives an opportunity to have some perspective on what is happening. And so I found that the synthesizing of it is very powerful. It makes me have a better understanding of essentially how, one, the depth of some of these restrictive policies and then their larger implications. What's different about doing this versus reporting individual stories is I feel like we're providing a service of providing a bigger picture, extremely important change to our society right now. And that I hope that we can provide that to readers. And one thing I also wanted to add that's been interesting is 
Well, we had set out to do this for immigration reporters primarily. You know, are the people who expressed interest are are people involved with immigration on policy and legal sides, but then also ordinary readers who are interested in understanding what's happening with immigration. And so I think that's something that I'd also really like to see us find a way to tap into and grow. Well, um, so how can people find uh, or to subscribe to Migratory Notes? Great question. <laughs> <laughs> um, oh, is, no, do you uh, have an answer for it? Moment. <laughs> You said that sarcastically. It's like, oh, wait, hold on a second. No, <laughs> no, I'm not sarcastic. Ernest, like, Ernest. honestly, this is a product. We kind of, we really love putting this together, and we love having more people gain access to it. Okay. So it was not sarcastic at all. It was very <laughs> earnest. But then I was also thinking, well, how can we do it? Yeah. Right. We don't have an easy um, short URL. Basically, you can search migratory notes. You can either follow us on Medium. Or you can subscribe, and if you click on any of the posts there, it'll say how to subscribe. Or you can follow us on Twitter, and we are often posting links to the newsletter. I am at 1E Aguilera, and Daniela is at D.H. Gerson. One of the reasons I reached out to you is, is that I do not follow immigration stories regularly, even though I'm a journalist and I should follow everything of importance regularly. But uh, I was really impressed with you know, the scope of the stories that you're including, the, the types of stories that you're including. The, the, and, you know, I think it's a really good service. And I think anybody who has a, a passing interest or at least wants to get a handle on what's actually going on, you know, I, I would highly recommend that they uh, they subscribe to Migratory Notes. So thanks. Thank, for, thank you. <laughs> we really appreciate that. Yeah, thanks. that's great. Thanks for do, thanks for doing the podcast. Thanks for, for doing the, uh, the newsletter. Keep thank up, you, Michael. Keep up no, the good work. I appreciate it. Next time on It's All Journalism. That's central to my notion of what it is to be an art critic, is trying to go deeper to say something. I mean, this is going to sound pompous and hubristic, but try to say something that matters, not just give the reader a tidy little summary of what there is in an exhibition or you know, what's normally thought about an artist, but really try to give them something new to, to think about, try to move the conversation ahead. In our next podcast, we talk to Blake Gopnik. He's a critic at large for Artnet News and writes about art and design for the New York Times. We talk about what it takes to be an art critic in the digital environment, as well as his upcoming book on Andy Warhol. You've been listening to It's All Journalism, a weekly podcast about digital media. Find out more about us and download past episodes at itsalljournalism.com. You can also find us on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, SoundCloud, Google Play, and Podcast One. This week's episode was edited by Nicola Grisco. Amber Healy provided our web content. Nick Dupre wrote our theme music, and I'm your host, Michael O'Connell. Hey, you've written a book. You can order copies of Turn Up the Volume, a Down and Dirty Guide to Podcasting on our website. Visit itsalljournalism.com and follow the link at the top of the page. Isn't it time you started your podcast? Do you like the work that we're doing here at It's All Journalism? Now you can show your support on our Patreon page. Follow the link at the top of our website and donate. For as little as a dollar a month, you can access exclusive content and receive updates about upcoming episodes. Donate a little bit more and we'll send you cool swag like our It's All Journalism mug or a signed copy of my podcasting book. There are even opportunities for you to submit ideas for future shows or even appear on an episode. Go to itsalljournalism.com and click on the Patreon link to find out more. It's All Journalism is produced in partnership with the Association of Alternative News Media. Thanks for listening. The
the Finish the Game podcast with your host, Sean Alexander. Draw play to Sean across the 10 to 5. Touchdown, Seahawks. Hey, this is Sean Alexander, NFL MVP. Check out my podcast, Finish the Game, where I discuss sports and life lessons helping you become an MVP. The Finish the Game podcast. Find it on iTunes, the Podcast One app, podcastone.com, or at WTOP.com. Search Podcast DC. The Target USA podcast with your host, J.J. Green. Russia could render huge harm to this country. North Korea's secret missile. That could touch the whole of the United States. ISIS. D.C. is repeatedly mentioned as someplace they would like to see an attack. This is J.J. Green. Join me each week for the latest on U.S. and international security on Target USA. The Target USA podcast. Find it on iTunes, the Podcast One app, podcastone.com, or at WTOP.com. Search Podcast DC.